electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan tonight. Sanders versus Schultz. Do you understand that in America, workers have a fundamental right to join a union? Kevin O'Leary will weigh in on that. Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and Andrew Yang demanding a pause in the AI arms race. Andrew Yang will join us live. Bob's big day. First, he ousts a longtime foe, and in a late-breaking development, may have gotten the upper hand on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. A Disney insider will explain. The astounding profits one company made on eggs, and we are not yoking. And more layoffs as cracks begin to show in the economy. Belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. As you just heard, we are jam-packed as always, and we're going to get to all of that. But first up on last call right now, we're going to stay out west. Call this California versus big oil, or some might suggest California versus drivers. California's Congress pushed through a new law that could tax oil companies billions if, and it's a big if, they hit certain profit margins and are found to be price gouging. The law would also create a new state agency that would act as a kind of quasi-regulator of the oil and gas industry. The agency would monitor prices and then try to figure out when any oil or gas companies were breaking the rules. California Gavin Newsom, who some see running for president in two years, made it clear that this law is also about the climate and national climate goals. He said, quote, it's a big day for consumers, a big day for Mother Nature and a big day in this country I hope this is a signal to other states. Now, proponents of the big oil profits tax say that it will hold oil and gas companies accountable for any price spikes. And this new agency is going to smoke out any suspicious price fluctuations. Now, if you're curious about prices, you can look for yourself. Oil and refinery price data is publicly available every day on energy.ca.gov. Now, the law passed easily through the state. 52 to 19, although 19 state reps and eight state senators did vote against the law, some suggesting it might actually have the opposite effect of what it's intended and raise gasoline prices by discouraging future investment. Remember, California has said, and it's currently pushing through, that it will ban the sale of all gasoline-powered cars in just 12 years, something that even progressive Europe just this week has said they're going to pull back on. Oh, by the way, if this does come up as a question on Jeopardy ever, here's the answer. The last big refinery built in the Golden State was in 1968. That is the newest refinery build in California. Let's talk more now about this and bring in Democratic State Senator of California, Nancy Skinner, who not only supports the law, I believe it was her sponsored rule, and the Republican State Senator of California, Brian Jones, 
who opposes the law. Uh, Senator Skinner, I will begin with you. And I guess congratulations are in order because this was your bill and it got passed. How would you counter any critics who say this could ultimately raise prices because we need more refining, not less? Thank you. Great to join you. Californians paid outrageously high gas prices last year, $2.60 more than any other state. That's highway robbery. And when we were being fleeced at the pump, big oil pocketed record profits. Oil companies during that time in just 90 days hauled in $62 billion in profits. And those gas prices that we were paying strained family budgets by at least an extra 600 a month. And that's what we're trying to protect against. This bill does not require a penalty. There's only a penalty if oil companies fleece Californians like they did last fall. I guess, Senator Jones, my concern, and we brought this up, we first talked about it last week. And again, I just want to be clear, my dad owned a gas station in Los Angeles when I was a child. So I kind of watched how tough that industry can be. Prices fluctuate massively up and down all the time is that we're taking one year of data, which arguably the oil companies did make a boatload of money. Let's be clear. We're taking one year of data and trying to extrapolate that out to effectively build a new regulator for an industry that is already regulated by the state and by the federal government. I think that's an interesting point. And the first thing I want, Brian, is recognize uh, Senator Skinner. She and I have worked together in the legislature for about 13 years now, and she's a respected leader. And uh, we've worked well together on lots of issues. We just disagree on this one. And the bottom line on this particular bill, Senator Skinner's bill and Governor Newsom, uh, they want to spend $10 million in an era of a budget deficit and a recession to allow unelected bureaucrats to meddle with the free market that's already, as you mentioned, overregulated here in California and throughout the country and to raise gas prices. And that's the bottom line of what's going to happen with this bill. Senator Skinner, well, first off, by the way, I love the fact that you guys are that's the hallmark of this program is to bring people on with different opinions and everybody actually is respectful and polite. So thank you both for that as well. It's a, I know it's a it's a rarity these days. Uh, Senator Skinner, I think the people I've talked to and I cover oil and gas. So, of course, I, I know a good deal about that that industry. They're just confused as to how this is going to actually work. Who are the people that are going to be looking at the prices? How long do prices have to be above certain level who exactly will go after the industry and what happens when they do certainly so look we all know there's market fluctuations there's different times when supply is high supply is low but during that time when californians were paying two dollars and sixty cents more a gallon the price per for a barrel of oil did not go up the indications were there was not supply problems and no one else across the country we're charged these prices. So we're trying to understand what happened, why in California. And so we have the bill creates this new panel of experts who will be some of them from the oil industry, have past affiliations with the oil industry. Others will be economists. Others will you know, be able to do this kind of analysis. And then the other thing that's really important about the bill is it requires data, the oil companies to provide us data so that we can do that analysis. And but don't they the already, prices, Senator Skinner, don't I talked to a number of them this week. Don't they already provide that data? I mean, the data is I was looking at refinery margins. I was looking at refinery margins. You can go to energy.ca.gov, any of our viewers right now, and you can see the margins day to day. Well, the question is, is this a cost that we're incurring because of a refinery extra price 
Or is it something else? And that's what some of our economists call it, this mystery surcharge that occurs in California. That's what we're trying to understand. And the data we've requested so far, none of it explains it. And certain data, the oil companies have not been forthcoming. So this bill allows us to get the data we need to do expert analysis. And then, and only then, if it, if the prices are so high that there's no explanation based on the oil company's own data, then there would be enacting a penalty. But we don't need to enact the penalty if it doesn't occur. Well, I, and OK, Senator, Senator Jones, I'm going to actually look down for a second because I should have printed it out. I'm going to read something. This is the Los Angeles Times last year. And I can answer, I could probably answer Senator Skinner's question about why they're so high. But this is the L.A. Times, which has been very critical of oil and gas. It wouldn't be so bad if not for the undisputed fact California is a gas island, no major interstate pipelines, leaving it reliant on in-state production and more costly trucks and tankers. The number of refineries cranking out gasoline has dropped to 10 from almost 50 a decade ago. I mean, everybody we talk to says California, by the way, state of my birth. I love it. Has kind of what's the Radiohead song? You do it to yourself. <laughs> well, Brian, you're, you're bringing up uh, points and issues that are very well known about California overregulating a bunch of different industries. I think back to the bill specifically, two of the things that I'm most disappointed in in the California legislature and, and really the governor leading this effort is he came out in December with a big, bold plan to have a windfalls profit tax. That idea didn't get any traction in the legislature. As a matter of fact, it didn't even get a bill introduction or a hearing to discuss it. And so that idea fell flat and he had to come back to the, to the drawing board and bring a new idea to the legislature that has been reported in the news, was negotiated behind closed doors, which means my constituents, the million people that I represent in California and many other senators that were not included in that discussion because it never had a public hearing before the language was finalized. So I'm disappointed about that. The other thing I'm very disappointed about in the bill is this isn't the legislature or the governor taking responsibility for what's happening with oil prices or gasoline prices in California. This is the legislature and the governor shirking their responsibility and appointing an unelected bureaucracy that doesn't even exist yet. And that means so California now is going to create more government to deal with well, that's with with, leg with uh, regulating corporations in California, which we all know at the end of the day, basic economics is, is going to increase prices to the final consumer. I, I want to give Senator Skinner, I know we started with you, but I do want to give you the final word. And I, and I will listen, the governor is a smart guy. He's got, he's been very good to us. I've interviewed him a number of times. He knows the oil and gas business, Senator Skinner. You know that his father, his father, <laughs> he knows it very worked, well. his father worked for Absolutely. Getty Oil. His, his winery is called Plump Jack, which sounds a lot like Pump Jack, which is the things that take oil out of the ground. So it's it's a Getty Oil back. So he I'm knows. That, that, he know I'm glad that's not lost on you, Brian. Well, no, no. Well, it's okay. Listen, it's fine. We all have to make a living somehow, Senator Skinner. But how much can you ease people's concerns that this is not going to be more overreach? I do worry, like I said, you know, growing up how I did. Can you give us? Assurances, you're not going to go after the local well, gas station owner who, who he or her is probably a first generation American and has almost no control over really what they point. what they buy the gasoline. Well, price they absolutely at. don't have control because most of the gas stations in California are not independently owned. They are owned by the same oil companies who are causing these outrageous prices. And most Californians, I mean, it hurt when you have to find 600 extra dollars a month. 
that hurts. So our purpose is to protect Californians against that. And yes, we are very proud that we have a clean air blend that we require from our refineries to keep our air pollution low. But that clean air blend, the refinery's own data shows that they produce enough for us in California, and they actually produce more yeah. refined products. Not our clean air blend, but they produce more and they export it outside of California. So the issue is not a supply problem of refineries within our state. Well, listen, I, I appreciate the thoughtful, polite and kind conversation. We're going to bring the show out to California at some point. Senator oh, Skinner, Senator Jones, I hope you both will join us. We'll go to all the Californias, the North, the South, the Central Valley. It's a it's a varied state. The Bay, San Diego, I'm everywhere. Happy too, and yeah. I appreciate being on with Senator Jones. He is absolutely correct. Appreciate we have a great relationship. Thank you very much. Let's go Encinitas. All right, before we head to break. Let's get to the last call watch list. First up, apparently the bulls are back in town. The big tech NASDAQ 100 technically powered back into a bull market. That means it's up 20% from its lows back on December 28th. Take it for what it will. This despite, or maybe because of, more layoffs. Electronic Arts, the latest big tech company to issue pink slips. The video game maker cutting 6% of its workforce, or about 800 jobs. Maybe that's more bad news for commercial real estate as well, because they're also going to reduce office space Stock seeing a modest, you know, no, actually it's down. There you go. Meantime, a big time payday for maybe the most powerful man in media. That is David Zaslov. You've never heard of him. He is the CEO of the newly combined Warner Brothers Discovery. And he bagged $39.3 million in comp last year. To put it politely, it has been a challenging year since Discovery and Warner Media merged last year. The stock's at about 40% in its trading debut, though it's had a big time rally this year. Maybe we should investigate movie price tickets. Corner stock, by the way, mostly flat after hours. And is the pandemic pushed home renovation trend morte? Furniture maker RH, you know them as Restoration Hardware, hit by sluggish demand for its pricey items. CEO also giving a gloomy outlook for the next several quarters, citing a quote, complete collapse of the luxury housing market and noting the lockdown boom is over. Yikes. Restoration Hardware, RH, down 5.5% after hours. All right. We are just getting warmed up here and we've got a a tiny little story about how artificial intelligence could be the end of humanity. That's all. No big deal. Entrepreneur and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang will join us next. Plus, feel the burn. Senator Bernie Sanders and Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, former going over going at it over working conditions. And remember when Disney's Bob Iger said this? about declawing Marvel's chief? Let's put it this way, he was not happy about it, and I think that unhappiness um, exists today. Well, now that guy's been kicked out of the castle, and that is not all that is going on at the House of Mouse, a big post-market development on Disney and its fight with Florida. Next. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Hope you're having a great night or great afternoon. Let's talk about the possible end of all of humanity as we know it. Kind of seems like a big deal, right? Well, some big names are calling for a pause on artificial intelligence, AI. The group is calling for a six-month halt on the training of AI systems. Now, that group is not just a bunch of random people. It includes Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, forward party co-chair and former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, and more than one thousand others signing this warning letter. And that document asked the public to ponder the following questions. Should we let machines flood out information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we risk loss of control of our civilization? Now, these are big questions, especially when we don't know how far this technology can go. And with us tonight, try to shed some light on some of these areas of concern is Ford Party co-chair Andrew Yang, show's called Last Call after that, Andrew. I feel like I might need a cocktail up here because my mind is tired just thinking about it. What is, what is the risk right now of AI as it is now to humanity, to, to the United States, to work? You know, you hope that those questions were hyperbolic, Brian, but they're actually pretty spot on. And if you look at ChatGPT, it has gotten leagues and leagues better in just a matter of days and weeks because it's being fed so much information. Someone tested it out and it got a 90th percentile score in the bar exam and an 88th percentile on the LSAT. So as it just keeps on climbing the charts, it's going to be able to do a lot of the work that right now white collar professionals do. What is this going to mean? What's this going to mean for our democracy when you can have AI deepfake videos that are completely indistinguishable from reality or have bad actors have tools that would allow them to target and damage and overwhelm critical systems in our infrastructure. So these are all very real possibilities. And the incentives right now for these companies are to go as fast as possible. I was looking at some of the stats that you provided us, Andrew. And, you know, you, you know, we know about the job market. We know about robots taking a lot of the manufacturing jobs over the last few decades. We get that. People have said the fast food worker's gone because you're going to have more robots making burgers and serving them. But the majority of Americans, many of them anyway, millions, tens of millions, work in what they call cognitively repetitive jobs, white collar jobs where, you know, they put their kids through college. They pay the mortgage. Are those the jobs, the people in the cubicles and the office buildings around America working for insurance companies or whatever? Are those the jobs most at risk? They are. You're talking about rules based information processing jobs. It could be accounting. It could be a call center worker. It could be someone who's uh, at an insurance company trying to make the forms match up. And this is a lot of freaking workers uh, you're talking about 44% of all American workers who are in either cognitive manual or cognitive uh, intellectual jobs and, oh, sorry, repetitive cognitive jobs, I should say. And those repetitive cognitive 
jobs are actually much, much easier to automate than manual work that requires a robot with digits that can handle things. It's a lot easier to get AI to write reports, take on the work of a lot of college graduates. Yeah, and training this, I mean, people have come up with these, these sort of Skynet-like horror stories about who's training these machines. What's the morality? What's the empathy? And also, I hate to say it, what is their political leaning? Because you can train a machine, I'm imagining, to have certain outcomes more than oh, others. Oh, yeah. Th these, are, these are tools, uh, Ryan. And so there are going to be people with different goals and different ideologies that get a hold of these tools and then use them for their own ends. And so you could wind up with a cacophony in our information environment where you don't know what's real. You could have fraud and identity theft at a scale that you, you right now can't even imagine. Uh, you could have someone call you on the phone impersonating a loved one and it's AI and it's indistinguishable from reality. I mean, a lot of these science fiction scenarios are on the table for real right now and we are racing toward them in large part yeah. because our government is way, way, way behind the curve on this. Uh, oh, People well, don't understand technology generally. Well, well I'm, I'm shocked the government's behind the curve on anything. All right, he says with, with, with non-AI generated sarcasm. Uh, Andrew, while some are calling for the pause, like you, there are others who are calling for more regulation. The uh, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman says we should speed up regulation instead of slowing down innovation. Listen and respond, please. We're not gonna be the only creator of this technology. There will be other people who don't put some of the safety limits that, that we put on it. Society, I think, has a limited amount of time to figure out how to react to that, how to regulate that, how to, how to handle it. You, you know, I, I don't know about you. I don't know, Mr. Altman. I find that argument a little bit scary because it's kind of like a gun argument, right? Well, why'd you get a gun? Well, because that guy has one, right? Oh, well, Sam has the right idea in the sense that, look, these technologies are going to get smarter and faster. Uh, certainly, we are in an international environment where you want, in my opinion, U.S. firms uh, to maintain leadership status. And he's right also that you should have an AI dedicated regulatory uh, agency or framework that actually will put guardrails in place so that we can innovate and not be frightened for our collective future. Yeah. People ask me right now, Brian, it's like, hey, who's who's monitoring this right now? We're relying upon everyone to self-monitor, but we're not talking just about the AI companies themselves. We're talking about all of the people who can get their hands on these tools. It's, uh, it's a path to disaster yeah. right now. We should have AI regulate the California oil price story we just did, and then another state agency to regulate the AI that regulates the regulation of the AI and oils. Just think about that, Andrew Yang. Oh, we're going to have you stick around, by the way. <laughs> Don't respond. It was sort of tongue-in-cheek. All right, <laughs> Andrew Yang is sticking around for our big money panel coming up in a bit. Still ahead, Bernie battles the baristas, the Vermont senator's fiery exchange with former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. Andrew will come back and be joined by one Kevin O'Leary, always just soft-spoken, and John Hope Bryant joining the uh, quote-unquote party. Lots to discuss on the other side. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.
All right, welcome back to Last Call. It was a scalding hot hearing on Capitol Hill today. Former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz facing some tough questions from a Senate committee. It is over Starbucks' alleged efforts to undermine unionization at the company's stores. Committee Chair Bernie Sanders, you might have heard of him, had been calling on Schultz to testify and even threatened to subpoena him. Both Schultz and Sanders exchanged some heated jabs back and forth. Listen. We have a corporation worth some $113 billion using their unlimited resources to do everything possible, legal and illegal, to deny these workers their constitutional right to form a union. Today, baristas in our stores earn on average $17.50. Respectfully, that's more than the minimum wage of every senator that's represented a state on this committee, including, respectfully, Chairman Sanders, where the minimum wage in Vermont is $13.18. You got to love the Starbucks product placement, too, in that. Anyway, let's take it to tonight's panel. Back with us, Ford Party co-chair Andrew Yang, O'Leary Ventures, Chairman Shark Tank Investor and CBC contributor Kevin O'Leary, and Operation Hope CEO and Chairman John Hope Bryant. Thank you all for coming on. Kevin, I'll start with you. Um, how much should a should a, a Starbucks worker or a worker at any Starbucks clone make? I think that's ultimately the fight that is behind the scenes here. Well, I, I think Bernie um, did himself a disservice because Starbucks has been very successful in bringing young people into the workforce. They pay them as detailed by Schultz more than the minimum wage. And the union discussion has been going on for years regarding unionizing Starbucks, and it'll happen based on market demand. But where I thought the most interesting part of today's testimony, because I watched it, was, and this is, this is something that I think is at the heart of the debate, when Bernie Saunders attacked the American dream, Howard Schultz started with nothing. He is not a, a, a young child born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Every person that moves to America, that comes here, that wants to be successful, would love to be Howard Schultz. With nothing, made it all himself, a multi-billionaire, gives yeah. back. To, and, and so here's Bernie attacking that. I thought Bernie lost equity in that dialogue. Of all the discussion that I've been having with people about that testimony, they felt uncomfortable where Saunders was going. We are attacking the American dream now. That's where we're going. Are we, We've John Hope Bryan? Are we, John Hope? Essence of the dream, John O'Brien, We had a, we had a very lovely young woman on the show last night. You and I were texting about yeah. it. Who's working to yeah. unionize in Memphis? And even you expressed some concern in your text to me, kind of saying like, "This is a good thing unless you put yourself out of a job effectively," because Starbucks says you can't sell a twelve dollar coffee. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to find myself actually agreeing with uh, Kevin O'Leary for uh, a minute here. Um, look, Howard grew up in a housing project <laughs> in Brooklyn. He had, his dad was uh, a truck driver. He, he, he had nothing. And I think we want to celebrate success like that. He even got the NAACP Social Justice Award, I think it was in 2017. I think we're picking on probably the wrong guy. Uh, you want more people like that? My, French, my, my, my friends tell me, some of my friends, liberal friends tell me, uh, and I'm not liberal or conservative, I'm just a I'm just a radical movement of common sense, but they tell me, oh, I hate rich people. No, you don't. You hate rich people till you become rich. <laughs> what you hate is a game system. And I, 
and I think that the young lady yesterday was suggesting that the system is is sort of gamed. I don't think she gave Howard enough credit for his up for nothing story. And I don't think maybe Howard has spent much, enough time because he assumes he understands the workers with young ladies like this to understand where they're coming from. I think there's a common ground. They're sort of missing yeah. each other. And, and Andrew, you know, listen, the, the, the reality of that industry is until Starbucks and a few others, but until Starbucks came in and changed it, it was literally like pouring coffee for people, right? You came and give me a cup of coffee, 75 cents. Starbucks turned it into an experience, a lounge, a part of the society. They built the, bar- nobody was heard of the word barista until Starbucks, of course, they stole it from Italy, we know that, but until Starbucks sort of put it on the American lexicon. I'm wondering if like other industries should do that. Like I'm not pumping your gas, sir. I'm a gasologist. Well, so, some industries can be turned into uh, more consumer-friendly luxury experience. Some cannot. I'm not sure if the gas station uh, example would work. Uh, I do have uh, friends and acquaintances who are baristas because of the health insurance. Uh, Starbucks has been ahead of the curve in terms of employee comp and benefits. Uh, but now they're like a lot of other major corporations where you look at it and you have incentives that are going to push you to say, look, a union is going to be tough on our bottom line and we're a publicly traded company. Uh, and so you have institutional incentives that are going to, to lead you in one direction. And the data says that if you have uh, unions and organized labor, then comp and benefits will go up further. So I, I think that they've done a lot of good yeah. in their own industry. Um, but, you know, that their incentives right now are probably running in a particular direction. It's just it's just it's a hard thing to navigate. And by the way, my point on if you don't know, by the way, if you're watching last call from any state but New Jersey, or Oregon, New Jersey, there's no self-serve. It's all full serve. And these guys are out there in freezing cold. They should probably be. My treat- wife likes that, by the way. I, when I we're in Jersey, not. she's like, oh, I, yeah, stop it. I do, I do not like it. And the gas station owners don't like it because they can't find people. It's the part of the staff. They can't find they people. They can't find point. it. That's why I'm saying they should just remarket themselves as gasologists and whatever. But Kevin O'Leary, it's kind of this downward spiral of inflation. I posted a picture of a, the saddest chicken sandwich I'd ever had, which was a couple weeks ago. I won't name the, the chain, but it rhymed with Anera. And, and it was $13. Okay, and I'm thinking, well, they, they got to charge 13 because they got to pay their people, but then the people want to be paid more because things are expensive. When they go shopping, where does this inflationary cost spiral end? I mean, how much are we going to pay for a coffee or a burger or whatever? Well, I think you're bringing up a great point. And what I say has happened post-pandemic is we have a new concept in America called the competition of states. New Jersey, New York, California, Massachusetts are no-go states. The idea of making people serve gas when others would rather serve themselves as a policy seems like a really bad idea because it makes it more expensive to buy energy. And so if you want a policy like that in New Jersey, you don't have to stay in New Jersey anymore. And in fact, $5 billion a year leaves these no-go states, and they moved to Texas, and they moved to Florida. No, they moved to Georgia. They're John Hope Bryant's neighbor. That's where they're well, going. My, you get my, my point is, this is healthy. This is a good is thing. Is it for who? You, you know what's going to happen then? You're gonna, what's going to happen, and I say this as a New Jersey resident, and Kevin, I think you live or lived in Massachusetts at one time as well, which John Hope Bryant is. There's going to be two types of people left in New Jersey and California, right? People who are too rich to leave and people who can't afford to leave. That's what I worry about. Mm. Yeah, we look. First of all, uh, and I know you're a fair person, uh, so I want to 
it's clever. Coffee didn't come from Italy, it came from Ethiopia. <laughs> but uh, no, the, the term, the, no, the word, the word barista. Oh, barista. Oh, yeah, definitely not coffee, 100%. No, no, the word. So, so look, the, the problem here is that we don't need it. We don't have a business plan. You know, the, the, this country is at war. I'm sorry, people are at war with us. And we're not, we're, not, we're not recognizing it. Like, China wants to be us. Russia wants to be us. And meanwhile, we're arguing with each other. And while I you know, sort of agree that, you know, with Kevin, that states should compete and all this kind of stuff. I mean, Atlanta is the 10th largest economy in the country. We love that. But we can't succeed and be celebrating somebody else's failing because the only person who wins in that war is another country who wants to take our seat at the throne. We've got to figure out what we're better together. That's why I say diversity and inclusion, by the way, is not a goody two-shoes issue. But as an example, the most profitable companies yeah. in the world are diverse and inclusive. The most profitable regions are diverse and inclusive. It's just good economics. And so we have got to figure out, are we better together? Do we want people to have a living wage? Do we want, or, do, we, do we think, go ahead. No, sorry, John O'Brien, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but we want to move on to the second topic very quickly. John, and a perfect segue, by the way. John O'Brien said, Andrew Yang, a living wage. You've talked about universal basic income. Is that where this all is headed? Uh, I, I think we have to start looking very, very realistically at different ways to get people resources in an era where AI is going to take millions and millions of jobs in the blink of an eye. And I have been blown away by the capacity of a lot of these new tools and how much better they're getting. Uh, it's it's mind blowing. Uh, and if we don't do something meaningful to get in front of it, you're going to see just gutted uh buildings, neighborhoods, communities that used to be filled with vibrant middle-class jobs. So what does that mean? I ran for president on universal basic income. I believe that that is going to be part of the foundation yeah. that we should lay so that people are watching this right now. If you're not worried about AI taking your job, then you're not paying attention. And what does that mean for us collectively as a society? I, I you know, Kevin O'Leary, I don't, I don't know, but it's a real, listen, it's a real worry, okay? I mean, the, the labor force participation rate for working age men was about 87% 30 years ago. I think it's 65% now. I think millions of, of working age capable men are not working, okay? And we can make all kinds of assumptions about why, but I think we can all agree it's not a good thing. Work, I think, gives us some purpose if it has purpose itself. We, we talk about drug problems, opioid addiction, fentanyl, drug problems in, in the inner city, John Hope Bryan as well, that millions of people not working I don't know how that looks as a society, but I guess I'm just getting old. Well, wait, wait, wait. You don't have to look or speculate. We have it right now. A very but but Andrew Yang is talking about tens of millions more no, people, but you not people losing a manufacturing job, Kevin. People who used to go to work at, you know, big insurance company for 70000 a year, not My having no job because the computer's doing it. Right now in San Francisco, if you're homeless, you get paid $7,000 a month. That's what the city attributes to the cost of maintaining homeless people. That's more, that's over $80,000 a year per homeless person in San Francisco. But, but well, they don't get that Kevin, they don't get that if that money that's was the... actually going to the individual, but it's not. It's going no, into I'm, I'm just infrastructures I'm just and organizations that, that often number. are not that's... getting the, the actual aid to the But there is, Andrew, some direct cost cash. centers themselves. Yeah, I think, I don't want to get off, off the topic. I just wonder, John O'Brien, what, we, we've seen it happen in some communities, both inner city and rural America. Right. How does this look? Yes. Ten million more people out of work because of chat GPT. Well, look, every 50 to 100 years or so, the economy has to reimagine itself. Uh, it, it happened with uh, with uh, Henry Ford creating the middle class in the production line. He paid his workers enough 
to buy the automobiles that they were making. Some people said that was a stupid idea. It created the birth of the middle class. You have to after World War II, you had the GI Bill, which helped, which helped mostly whites, by the way. Uh, it, but that created the what we now call the white middle class and gave everybody a chance for home ownership. And really, to Mr. Yang's point, it gave people. Uh, uh, I, I, I would have a different phrase. They called it a living wage, not a guaranteed. I don't want to, you know, whatever his phrase is. I don't want to uh, say it, uh, say it wrong. But I say they gave them a living wage, and that boosted the entire economy. And, and all in all both roads. We're going to have, you know, you're, you're going to have robotics. You're going to have AI. It's coming. And I agree with you, uh, Brian, that we should have it. Or I, think, I think it was Andrew. We should have it be, uh, versus another country having it. But we got to figure out how can we have a conscious on capitalism here? Can we do well and do good at the same time? I tell my rich friends, my rich friends need my poor friends to do better if only to stay rich. 70% of this economy is consumer spending. It's the average everyday person. So, so we need enough people yeah. to have enough money to, to have a roof over their head and food on the table. At the same time, I rejected a, living, a, a, a minimum wage job or it, you know, guaranteed wage. When my mother wanted me to work at McDonald's, McDonald's aircraft, I wanted to become an entrepreneur. That's where Kevin and I. Yeah, I but, you, but you, you, you rejected the job and went on to a different job because that's what you wanted. There's people that's that are rejecting all jobs and then just not doing, and I think anything, and I think that's that's the frustration of many of our viewers and listeners, I'm guessing. I don't want to speak for them. We're going to get a lot of small business owners, by the way, on this thing, we, so we don't have to tell the story. They can. And by the way, I want to say thank you, John Hope, Brian, Kevin O'Leary, Andrew Yang. Great conversation. And by the way, folks, we're, I'm at Sully CNBC. We're at Last Call CNBC. If you are a small business owner out there, any size company, you want to come on, tell your story. I want to get a bunch of people from all over the country, diverse geography, diverse individuals, diverse people, diverse businesses to tell your story. All right. Now time. Let's just switch gears here. Now time for Quicker Than the Ticker, all the news that matters and just some other cool stories we found. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. A sad sign of the times to start. Narcan, the nasal spray that can help prevent fatal opioid overdoses, has been officially approved by the FDA for over-the-counter sales. Higher egg prices means more money in the pockets of big egg. America's largest egg producer, Calmaine Foods, reported a profit jump of more than 700% last quarter. U.S. highway safety regulators are investigating a seatbelt issue in Tesla Model X's. Officials have received two complaints from Tesla owners that the front belts came loose while driving because they were not attached properly during production. The Eternal Pink has been described as the most vibrant pink diamond up for auction ever. A 10 plus carat gem estimated by Sotheby's to go for more than 35 million bucks. Cute animal alert. Rare twin Amur leopards were born at the San Diego Zoo recently. How rare? Fewer than 300 likely exist today. And that's all the time we got. By the way, I'd never heard of that leopard. It's indigenous to like southeastern Russia and northern China. Who knew? All right, still ahead. Disney CEO Bob Iger taking bold steps against at least two adversaries just days after laying out plans to lay off thousands of employees. More on Bob's bold steps try to protect Disney. Plus, the market failures fueling the dangerous spread of generic drug shortages. Part two of our series. Next. All right, welcome back. Some, some big headlines out of Disney today. First up, Disney CEO Bob Iger moving to oust Marvel Entertainment chair Isaac Perlmutter. But that is not all. Some late-breaking news from the state of Florida. 
The new board appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis that essentially was going to oversee Walt Disney World's government services apparently may not have any actual real power. That is because the day before the new board took over, Disney pushed through quiet measures that would heavily limit the new board's authority for at least the next few decades. Thus, I guess, giving the power back to Disney. Joining us now is Puck News founding partner Matt Bellany. Matt, um, to this board issue, Disney's lawyers, uh, if, if this works, they need all raises because they were smart and got ahead of the state of Florida. Do you really think, though, it, it kind of neutered DeSantis's power? Well, that's certainly what Disney thinks. And I know that they have a very robust legal department that reviewed this very carefully. And they were conspicuously quiet over the past few months. And now we see why. They have essentially inserted language in this contract that prevents this Ron DeSantis board from essentially doing anything that would impact Disney when it runs this uh, Ready Creek district. And that is in direct contrast to what DeSantis wanted to do in putting all of his cronies on this board. They essentially have their hands cuffed by Disney. And it's, I mean, if this works, it is quite the move by Disney. Yeah, I'm, you know, listen, I'm not the great poet philosopher Forrest Gump, but to quote him, I'm not a smart man. But I will say this, Matt, I'm smart enough to know I don't think DeSantis is going to take this sitting down. Oh, certainly not. And they're already saying in Florida that they're going to hire lawyers, coincidentally, or perhaps not, lawyers that have ties to Ron DeSantis to try to undo this or challenge it or at least figure out how to work with this. So we are gearing up for a pretty big legal fight here. And you've got to be an expert on uh, civics and how these public-private partnerships work in order to figure this stuff out. Because Disney had an extraordinary arrangement in Florida. DeSantis tried to take it away. And Disney, by doing this, is trying to hold on to that control over its, uh, over its central district there. You know, let's talk about the other story, Bob Iger, okay? Bob Iger, uh, you know, kind of comes across like Uncle Bob sometimes, right? Like, hey, he's always smiling, he's talking to Julia Borston. Okay, this guy whacks Bob Chapek as CEO, comes back in. Now he's gotten rid of the Marvel CEO. I don't know if that's a good move or not. Maybe you have an opinion, Matt, because Marvel's a big-time moneymaker. I mean, Bob Iger's like the John Wick of CEOs. <laughs> well, that's mixing your metaphors here. That's not a Disney franchise. He's oh, so more like the... The Tony Stark the grimace. of, of, oh, no, of Disney. Oh, no, McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Iger, Iger, this is very much in his wheelhouse here because he would argue that Ike fought first here. Ike Perlmutter was the secret brain behind this proxy fight that Disney had been having for a few months with this investor, Nelson Peltz, who is a close personal friend of Ike Perlmutter. And Peltz had been advocating for a board seat and advocating for cost cuts and all of these things and really a thorn in Iger's side. And they did a lot to placate him, but the message was very clear. Frankly, Ike Perlmutter has not had a major role at Marvel or Disney in seven or eight years yeah. now. They really took him out of the picture and sided with Kevin Feige, who has been the creative engine at Marvel. But Ike we'll is see. still a major shareholder. So they had to deal with him, and Iger has never really gotten along with him. This is really, uh, this is just him saying, you come after me, you're out. That, that's it. It's like Star Wars 12 then, maybe. Matt Bellany, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. No you're doubt, wrong. read about it in Puck.
All right, yesterday we brought you the story about why some critical antibiotics are in short supply in the United States. Tonight, in the second part of our series, Meg Terrell looks at market failures in the generic drug industry that can have devastating consequences. As medical director of the Poison Control Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Dr. Kevin Osterhout relies on crucial medicines to treat things like lead poisoning, which can be devastating for children. I characterize lead as a burglar, right? It lurks in our homes undetected and it robs children of their potential. But of the three main medicines that treat lead poisoning, each has faced a shortage in the U.S. in the last two years. Now, the most important drug for brain swelling caused by lead poisoning is unavailable after its manufacturer, Acorn Pharmaceuticals, went bankrupt. The generic drug industry right now is in, on shaky ground. Generic drugs are critical to the U.S. healthcare system, making up 90% of all medicines sold. But they're also the most likely to be in shortage because of what experts describe as a market failure, when important drugs become too cheap. We rarely see a shortage of a branded product, um, in part because you know, the financial incentives are there. Um, to, to not have a shortage. Like, we've never had a shortage of Humira. We're, we've never had a shortage of Keytruda. According to a recent Senate report of drugs that went into shortage between 2013 and 2017, 67% were generic, with a median price of less than $9, and had been on the market for an average of 35 years. Wall Street has soured on the generic drug business, sending stocks of companies like Teva, Viatris, and Amniel to fractions of their former valuations as revenue shrank and debt piled up. As the U.S. struggles with record high drug shortages, experts say addressing weaknesses in the generic drug industry, along with building up U.S. manufacturing, are critical. Bringing more onshore, more stuff into the United States, and making sure that the generic industry operates at a more profitable level so that supply can be, can be uh, steady, that's going to happen. Just it's, it's taking too long. And in the meantime, doctors like Kevin Osterhout are bracing for difficult times. When those rare events like encephalopathy from lead poisoning occur, it's really important to have the right medicine on hand. And um, that's the bleak future we're facing now. These kinds of shortages are happening for all kinds of drugs, including for cancer and, as we discussed yesterday, antibiotics. And as much attention as the high prices of drugs get in the U.S., a recent Senate report found that generic drugs cost an average of 16 percent less here than in other countries. And that contributes to these ongoing problems. Brian? So it's almost because they're too cheap? Yeah, the incentives aren't there when these medicines are so inexpensive to make sure that there's a resilient supply chain in case there are any interruptions. You know, if there's a really big drug, like our expert Aaron Fox was talking about with Keytruda, that's a multi-billion dollar cancer drug for Merck. They make sure that if there's a disruption, they can make sure they keep supplying it. But if an antibiotic costs a dollar, there isn't that kind of incentive built in. Amazing. Too expensive and too cheap. Uh, you wonder if there's like a Goldilocks in there. Meg Terrell, important story. Thank you. All right, coming up, a huge stock market moment that brought cheers to the floor of the NYSE. We're going back in time, but don't you dare sing the Huey Lewis song. Monday, March 29th, 1999, the day that will be remembered as the first time the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed above the 10,000 mark. 
And this is how it looked two hours ago on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when that closing bell rang. That, of course, the legendary Suhurer on the Dow's major milestone. That was 24 years ago today. That was a huge moment on Wall Street. It took the Dow about a year to go from nine grand to 10 grand. And then buyers got all jumpy. And it only took 20 days to go from 10,000 to 11,000. We'll see you tomorrow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.